Uh, also, I want to make one announcement as we begin, um, and I want to let you know that um, just kind of as a way of keeping you up to date and, and, and giving you some information, that Suzanne Brown, our children's minister, uh, has made the decision to to retire, to transition out of the role of children's minister. Suzanne uh, has been trying to retire for a couple of years, and I wouldn't let her. Um, and so uh, she finally told me earlier this year, this is my last year, we need to do something else. And so uh, she and Burton still plan to be here. They're going to still be involved with our children and, and serving in all kinds of ways. That She just doesn't want to be in charge of the of the whole thing, and so uh, her and Burton also are out of town this week to up in Oklahoma to celebrate with one of their grandkids who is being baptized at uh, their church, and so um, I want to let you know today, because uh, in two weeks, our plan is to recognize Suzanne and, and honor her for the, I think I did the math, I think it's probably been at least nine years or so she's been serving in that role, so uh, a long time, and she's given a lot, I'll have a lot of really sweet and kind and great things to say about her when she's actually here in the room uh, in a couple of weeks. So just mark your calendars, be aware of that. You are planning to hire someone else in that role and, uh, and want you to be praying about that as well. Uh, and we know that God will walk with us through that process. So one note about that in the, in the bulletin, there is a, um, an announcement. If you're a parent of a child in our children's ministry, uh, we're having a meeting this coming Wednesday night during class time just to kind of facilitate uh, having your kids having a place to go, and so I uh, would love your, you, you to be there if you can um, to just begin to pray and dream about the next steps involved with that process. So I wanted to let you know about that just kind of as a housekeeping thing, just to keep you updated and aware of, of what's going on with that. So today we are uh, in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, I am really excited about our sermon this morning. Um, if you're doing a sermon series through the book of Daniel, you really do the sermon series for Daniel chapter 3. I mean, it's, it's like, it's the best story, maybe the best, I don't know, there's some other great ones coming, but it's, it's, it's the, one of the best stories in the whole book. I think one of the best stories in the entire Bible uh, contains maybe some of my favorite words in all of Scripture in the story that you'll read with me here in just a minute. Um, it's just packed full of things that I think are still so relevant for our lives today, and I hope that you feel that way at the end of our sermon that I have uh, done a good enough job, and uh, if I don't, that the Holy Spirit will take over uh, and help us see the ways that this story in Daniel 3 is still so relevant for our lives today. But before we jump into Daniel 3, I want to back up just quickly, because last week we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and I think Dan the beginning of Daniel chapter 3 is really connected to chapter 2, and I hadn't really seen it before until I started preparing for this series, but in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, we learned, has this crazy dream about a statue. And I showed this picture last week about, you know, it's just an example. I don't know, it didn't certainly look exactly like this, I'm sure, but uh, it's a modern day attempt to try to illustrate it. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we learned that the head of the statue is gold, and the chest are, uh, and arms are made of silver, the stomach and area and the thighs were made of bronze, the legs were made of iron, and then the feet were made of partly iron and partly clay. So you can kind of see the, the statue gets weaker as it goes, you know, the further it goes down to the ground. And in this dream Nebuchadnezzar has, there's this large rock that he sees, and it crashes into this statue at the, at the feet, and it makes the entire thing crumble because there's no strength, obviously, in the feet. And it just, it's completely destroyed. Well, Daniel is the interpreter of 
the dream. And so he's summoned to talk to King Nebuchadnezzar and to tell him what this dream is all about. And he tells him, as I talked about last week, that, that what this dream means is, is that uh, even though Babylon, Babylon is the, the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, but even though it is, there is some strength in this massive world superpower, this huge nation this, that Nebuchadnezzar has been growing, Daniel says, I hate to tell you, but it's not going to last forever. After you, there will be another nation that will come, another one after that, and another one after that. And we talked a little bit about that. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But he tells him, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that, that part of what's going on in this dream, especially when the rock comes and it crashes into the feet, is that one day God is going, in the future, God will establish a kingdom that is unlike any kingdom that the world has ever seen. And this is the kingdom, of course, that we know today that was, esta- was established through Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God doesn't just have one territory. It's not bound just by whatever human borders that got drawn. Uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that this, this nation, this kingdom will fill the entire earth. There will be citizens of the kingdom all over the planet, and it will endure forever. And so that is sort of the background of Daniel chapter 3. And I remind you about that because as soon as you turn the page from Daniel chapter 2 to Jan- Daniel chapter 3, you realize there's a little moment at the end of chapter 2 where you think maybe Nebuchadnezzar is getting it. And then you realize he didn't change at all. He doesn't get it. And it's like he just sort of rejects this dream. In Daniel chapter 3, it's like he just kind of, it's like he hears it, but he kind of rejects it. Because, it's, because he's gonna, we're going to see this, he builds a statue, but it's not like this statue. And it's like he says to himself, instead of a statue that is made of all sorts of different kinds of materials and that is weak at the feet, you know, where it can, get, it can be crashed to the ground and destroyed, why don't I just make a statue that's made of, entirely of gold? The way that, you know, that way it'll be stronger, it'll last forever. So this is how Daniel chapter 3 begins. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, I want to stop just, just really quickly for some perspective about this statue. This story says that the statue is 90 feet high, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. If you have ever driven down I-45 on your way to Houston, I wouldn't recommend going to Houston unless you absolutely have to, but if you had to go to Houston you gotta, and you're going to go down I-45, you're going to drive through Huntsville, Texas. Lana and I lived there for nine and a half years. And in Huntsville, most of you have seen this statue of Sam Houston. Uh, and it's right there on the highway. That statue is 67 feet tall. And its base is, I think, 10 feet at wide at its base. So 20 plus feet higher than this statue. When, and, and one of the things that I learned by, because I lived in Huntsville was that uh, they're really proud about is that you can see this statue from miles away when you're coming s- from the south, from Houston toward Huntsville. It's lit up at night, and you can't really tell what it is, but if you know to be looking for it, you can see it. It's this tiny little white speck on the horizon, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you drive toward it. The point in building this statue and the point in Nebuchadnezzar building his is that they want it to be noticed. They want it to be seen. They want it to send a message right? And so 
I want you just to kind of have that in your mind as some perspective about this statue. It's out there. It's on a plane. So maybe he's, it's his kind of modern-day way of saying there's not going to be anything else around. It's going to be flat everywhere else around. So people are going to be able to see it from miles and miles away. I'm sure the sun shining off the gold made it very, very visible. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a st- this massive statue built. It's sort of this kind of this way to communicate his strength and his power. Let's pick up in verse 2. This is what it says next. He then summoned, after he built the statue, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps and prefects and governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language, remember Nebuchadnezzar was conquering everybody, so there's all sorts of people who speak all kinds of different languages that are living in Babylon. They all fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At, at this time, some Babylonians came forward and denounced, am I, is that, is that, yeah, keep, okay. At this time, some Babylonians came forward and denounced the, king, the, denounced the Jews. They didn't like Jews. They were like, this specific group of people we don't really like. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So here's what's happening in this story, really quickly. This is sort of the opening ceremony. This is like the ribbon cutting, the Chamber of Commerce ribbon cutting for this statue. Everybody is there. Anyone who is anyone is there. That's the whole reason that You list all the magistrates and the prefects and the governors and the judges. It's sort of this literary device that they're using in the writing that they're doing to tell you anybody who's anybody is there. And if anybody who's anybody is there, then all of us who are not anybody should also be there, right? All these powerful people are all there. They're all standing before the statue, and so you should be too. And the Babylonian band we hear is there. And when the band starts playing, everybody is told that they are to bow down, to pledge their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar by bowing down to his statue. But there are some some Babylonians that don't like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they go to the king. And they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, right? There are these guys, remember the ones that you made governors because of their friend Daniel. You made them governors over some of the states in your nation. They aren't doing what you say. And when the Babylonian band plays, they don't bow down. They're still standing up. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this. But he is going to give them a chance to sort of speak for themselves, to 
let them kind of reconsider their decision. So he, he invites and summons them to meet with him. And this is what he says next, what happens next. Furious with rage, because he's always mad, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all their kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the God I have made, well, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar basically says this. He says, maybe there was a misunderstanding, guys. Like, maybe you didn't understand the assignment. When the Babylonian band plays, you're to bow down along with everybody else in this nation. You're going to bow down and you're going to worship my statue. I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you a chance to reconsider your decision. But you need to know there's consequences if you don't do it. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego say, King, we don't need a second chance. We understood the first time. We understood the assignment. We are willing to serve in your government. We will seek the common good. We will work toward the flourishing of all people in this nation, but we will not worship the statue that you have set up. I want you to listen to what they say. These are some of my favorite verses in the story and maybe in all the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, a little like respectful jab kind of there, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I really like these guys. Like these are my guys, some of my favorites, some of my heroes. They say to the king, this isn't about you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're asking us to do something that we believe that would go against what we believe is true about the world and who runs the world, right? You have to remember that for Jews, the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments were have no other gods before me and don't make any image of any kind. So this is like deeply ingrained in who they are. they, They say, you can even kill us, but we will not change our minds. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar reacts? You think he likes this response? Oh, no. Now he's been challenged. Now he's been tested. Now they've called his bluff. So now they have to go into the fire. But he's so mad, he says, don't just throw them into the fire. Heat the fire up seven times hotter. How hot is this? I mean, we don't really know. The point is, as hot as you can make it, make it that hot. No more chances for these guys. Nebuchadnezzar's had enough. And so they get tossed into the fire. This is what verse 21 says. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and outer clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, look, there's four men 
One, two, three, four men walking around in the fire, unarmed, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, that fourth one looks like, looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. There's a scene. They saw that, their, that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed, nor ro- their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them, which you know is impossible because you're around a campfire, you smell like it for days, right? If it sounds even in this story, as Nebuchadnezzar calls out to them and says, refers to God as the most high God, if he sounds like he's beginning to believe it, I want to caution you to not buy it. He does not believe in Yahweh. He likes the power of God, and he wants that for himself. But as the story will reveal and as we continue, he wants people close to him who have access to this power, but he himself is not, his heart is not changed. He's practical, but he's not convinced about God just yet. And so I want to think together for this story, about this story for our, our remaining time. How are we to think about this powerful story? What can we learn from this powerful story? The first thing, there are three things that I want to talk about. The first thing is this. Nebuchadnezzar built an idol. Like we understand that, right? Like this is what this is. This is an, as an idol. And, and one of the challenges that I believe living in a modern world that we live in, it, with people that read the Bible in the modern world, is that we read stories like this, and, and we can read it, and we can go, yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't really happen like that today. Right? Idols don't really exist in the same way that they do in Daniel chapter 3. So we can sort of be sort of lulled into this, this mental thought process that, well, we don't have the same scenarios in our lives that they had in their life, which I would say couldn't be further from the truth, right? The issue in our day, honestly, friends, is that our idols are more subtle. I mean, they don't stand out like a 90-foot statue out in the middle of a field, but they are just as big as that. And, and just to kind of define what idolatry is, idolatry is, is this, anything that we worship. Anything that we worship. Anything we can't get enough of. Anything that you are constantly thinking about can be an idol. It could be your job. It could be your Amazon account. It could be the opinions of other people about your physical appearance. It could be your bank account or the money you're earning or not earning. It could be your past. It could be relationships. It could be a thousand different things. Your hobbies, things you do in your free time. And our issue is, I am convinced, that we don't think we have a problem with idols. But if the story of Daniel chapter 3 teaches us anything, it is this. Eventually, the thing about idols is this, that eventually every idol will ask you to bow your knee to it. Either the idol will or the person who's controlling the idol will ask you to bow your knee to it. 
And what we have to ask ourselves is, as we do an honest evaluation of our lives, is this question. What can I not get enough of? What can I not get enough of? Right, because it's, it, would be easy. it would be easy for me to get up and to preach this story in kind of a, you know, it's a cute little Bible story and we all feel good about ourselves. Man, those guys are awesome. How powerful is our God? Man, they, they really did what, what we want to do. It'd be easy to do that version of this sermon. You all know that, right? Like I could preach that sermon and I could let all of us off the hook and I could sit down and we could go on about our week and think nothing of it. None of y'all would think anything of it if I did that. But I can't do that. I can't do that for myself, if I'm going to be honest, and I can't do that because I love you. It would be easy for us to think, man, these are ancient people, right? I mean, they don't know what we know today. They're not as educated and as technologically advanced as we are. I mean, we would never, we would never bow to an idol if somebody made us bow down. Are we sure about that? This morning, I want to invite you to be honest about the fact that our idols are just as prevalent today. And I want to invite you to do some honest work in your own life about what those idols are because they're different for each and every one of us. Some of us will have the same idols, but they're going to be different for many of us. What can you not get enough of? And, and as a, again, I could even stop there, but I'm going to take an additional like practical step. This is my challenge for you this week. If you'd only do one thing, this is what I want you to do. If you only take one thing from the sermon, this is what I want you to take. This week, I want to invite each and every one of us to take 30 minutes. You could take more if you want, but at least 30 minutes. And spend time quietly reflecting. Quiet, as much as quiet as you can get it. I realize stages of life, that may be hard, harder for some of us than others. Find a way. Get up early in the morning. Do it late at night. Do it during your lunch break. Don't go to lunch with that person so you can sit in your car and eat lunch by yourself and sit and think for 30 minutes. You and God spend 30 minutes thinking about and asking God to reveal to you what it is that you can't get enough of. You might even have to put it on your calendar, like, this is the time I'm going to meet with God this week. Because if you're like me, if you don't put it on your calendar or your to-do list, it won't happen. And then after you've spent that time, I'm convinced that God will reveal some things to you. The Spirit of God will reveal some things to you as you're listening for God and asking for God to, to expose the idols in your life. And then I want you to write down what comes to mind, and I want you to sit with it. I just want you to sit with it, and then I want you to ask the next question, God, what do I do with this? Maybe you have to take some, some steps toward changing some things in your life in order to diminish or lessen the significance of that thing in your life, or at least to evaluate your heart if that's all that happens. Sometimes just slowing down enough to reflect will reveal the thing that we need to see. So that's the first thing I want to talk about is, that, is idols that I think we take from this story. This, the next thing I want to say about this story is this. And I've said this lots over the years, but it's always a good thing to be reminded of. I can't promise you, I wish I could, but I cannot promise you, that if you stand true to Jesus Christ, that you will never suffer in the furnace of life. You'll never suffer in the fire. I can't make that promise. Because to make that promise would be to go against 
story after story after story after story in Scripture. It would also be to go against history. If you go read Hebrews 11 about these heroes of faith, I mean, they died in some crazy ways for standing for their faith, for standing and living the, the life that they thought they were supposed to live. Sawn in two, burned at the stake. They did everything right, and that was the way they died. People have suffered for following God. What I can promise is this. What I have experienced in my own life personally, and I know many of you have experienced as well, is that Jesus will be with you always, always, always. He might deliver you from the flame, but he might not deliver you from the flame. But he will never, ever, 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 ever leave you alone. Was it an angel in the fire? Was it Jesus? There's a lot of debate and opinion about that. I don't really care. Honestly, whatever I know, the, the, the fancy theological term that I paid a lot of money to get a degree to learn about is theophany, which just means God showed up. It's a theophany moment. God showed up. That's what we know that happened in that fire. God showed up. Sometimes we hope to be delivered from our blazing furnace, and then we are not delivered from it. And some of you know what I'm talking about in your own personal life. There are things you prayed about, you wrestled about, you tried to, and you're like, why is this still happening? I want to change. I want this thing to be different. I want my, this person's life and my in my. This person's relate this relationship I have in my life, I want their life to be different. I, I, why is it still happening? And, you're, and if there's delivery doesn't deliverance doesn't seem like it's coming. Right? They were thrown, they were thrown into the fire. We we get that part of the story, right? They still were thrown into the fire. But they were not left alone. God was with them. And and and, and I I have to say too, this it doesn't mean if something happens to us that we've done something wrong, these guys did everything right by all, everything we can tell. Somewhere along the way, one of the like troubling ideas I think that has emerged in Christianity, somewhere along the way, I don't even know where it started, but it began to show up, is that if you do all the right things and you try to do right by all people, that your life will turn out good. And I listen, there is some truth in how important our decisions are, that we reap what we sow, that our choices have consequences. But your morality, how you live your life, is not the thing or the only thing that determines the comfort that you have in life. Right? These guys are following God. They seem to be doing everything right. And, the, and their lives get harder, not easier. Following Jesus is not always safe. Sometimes it means we get thrown into the fire. We suffer because we are trying to do the right thing. The story of the Bible isn't that if you're good and you do things the right way, that nothing hard will ever come your way. The story of the Bible, the story of Daniel, reminds us that sometimes life is hard when you do the right thing. It is, life is beautiful. It is good. It is a gift. But it can also be hard. And the question that we must consider in the midst of the hard, good, beautiful life that we have is, will we remain faithful? Will you remain faithful? 
Will you refuse to bow your knee when the music begins to play? God might keep you from the fire, but even if he does not, will you remain faithful? Will you continue holding on to Jesus? Which leads me to the final thing that I want to say. I think it's really important to notice that these men stood together. They were thrown into the fire. Even the people who turned them into Nebuchadnezzar, listen to how, again to how they said it. They said, but there are some. Anybody who's anybody is doing this. But there are some. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just picture thousands and thousands and thousands of people standing out in this field and the music plays and everybody hits the ground bowing down and these three guys are just standing up by themselves. They were together. And the thing that I want you to consider this morning is, who is your sum? Who are the people that will stand with you, not only when things are good, but when they get hard? Because standing can be hard. In fact, as an example, I want to try something this morning. This could not work but I want to try it anyway. You ready to try something with me? One, two, three. Now, some of you who are standing or who are sitting still, you're wondering what in the world just happened. I'm really confused. Hang with me for just a second. Before church started in the pews around the room, and some of them I handed personally to people, I gave a piece of paper that said, please read this. During the sermon, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to count one, two, three. And when I count to one, two, three, you stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. Some of you stood up. I just saw your face. You're like, I guess I'm supposed to stand up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. But those people who said Jesus is Lord, right? Some of you are like, I, I believe Jesus is Lord. I want to say it too. I want, I, want to, I want to explain this for just a second. First of all, let's everybody stand up. If you didn't stand up, everybody, everybody already standing up? Okay. Let's, let's, on the count of three, let's do it again, and we're going to say Jesus is Lord. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Now, I gave this piece of paper to just a few of you. Way more of you stood up than the number of papers that we gave out. I gave it at the beginning of the service, and I know, I don't know who it is, but I know there is somebody in the room who got that piece of paper, who saw it. We tucked it into some of the Bibles and stuff in the, in the pew in front of you. I handed it to a few people personally. Some of you who got that paper, who saw it sitting in front of you, are like, oh, no. I can't do that. That's out of my comfort zone. And you, the whole, you didn't hear anything I said in the sermon because the whole time you're thinking, when is he going to say that one, two, three thing? When am I supposed to stand up, right? And you were worried. and, and you, you were, I'm not asking you to single yourself out. I just want you to acknowledge, like think about it. And if, if you didn't get a paper, but if you saw it, some of you would be like, yeah, that would have been me. I, I would have been wondering who else was going to stand up. Am I going to be the only one? Listen, if there, if, if, we were, if, some, if there might have been some anxiety or nervousness about standing up on a Sunday morning proclaiming Jesus is Lord in the place where we're gathering to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, if we're honest, that same reality, right, that, that gets multiplied, magnified in the world. Will you and will I stand up when other people are bowing down and say, we will not bow down? to your gods. 
we will not choose your idols because we serve the God most high. How hard is it for our students in their schools to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord? How hard is it for you in your places of work to stand up, in your family sometimes to stand up? And my question for us this morning is, will we stand? Will we be people that stand up? It will always be hard to do something by ourselves, but they did it together. And we have to always remember that we need people to stand with us. We have people to stand with us to resist the world's pull. Having people who are also trying to help stand for Jesus, what it does is it strengthens our ability to stand. If I know I'm not the only one doing it, now I have something different to say in a few chapters when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den and he's, he's praying when he's not supposed to be praying. But for this story, these three guys did it together. And what, what I believe, oh, I can't tell you for sure, what I believe is that because they were doing it together, it was easier to do. Right? I mean, you can tell me what you want to tell me, Nebuchadnezzar, but it doesn't matter. Because we, God's going to save us, but even if he doesn't, he will, he will actually deliver us, they said. One way or the other, he's delivering us. And so doing it together strengthens our ability to stand. Who are your some? Then there, there are some who won't bow. And what this story reminds us is of that. It invites us, again, to evaluate the idols in our life. Spend that time this week thinking about that. It asks us to consider the question, will we remain faithful in the fire even if God doesn't save us from it? And then, do we believe Jesus is Lord? And will we walk in community together, linking arms, journeying through life, believing that we are better together than we are by ourselves? You show me a person who is trying to follow Jesus by themselves and show me somebody who is doing it with other people, I will show you the difference between someone who is struggling and who is not. Can't do it together. Can't. I don't think it's possible, honestly. Let's pray. Father, this morning we proclaim that you are God and that Jesus is Lord. And this morning we ask as we consider this powerful story from Daniel chapter 3 and in the reality that it speaks into our own lives, that you, Father, will stir up in our hearts, create an, an awareness in us of the idols that remain in our lives, though more subtle, just as significant. And we ask, God, that you will expose those and reveal those so that the healing process of getting rid of those can begin, or at least altering our affection for those things, that process can begin. I pray, Father, that you will help us to remain faithful even if we go through the fire, even if we are not delivered from the suffering, the struggle, the pain that we might go through, that our loved ones and our friends and our family members might go through. And I thank you, God, for this community. And I thank you for community, for your wisdom in creating the church and knowing that we need people, we need friends, we need a sum, we need a group of people who we can link arms with and walk through life with and know that we are not alone. I'm thankful for these three men, three of my favorite guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I pray that their story will speak deeply to our hearts today, remind us about who we are and who we follow. That that same power that delivered them 
from the flames is at work in us today. And we thank you for that good news. And we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Let's sing.